This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The retail industry was in the midst of unprecedented disruption. Then came COVID-19. Wharton professor Barbara Kahn is the author of The Shopping Revolution, How Retailers Succeed in an Era of Endless Disruption Accelerated by COVID-19. In a newly released, updated, and expanded edition, Khan examines the companies that have been most successful during a tsunami of change in the industry. I'm Brett Lodrado, senior editor at Wharton School Press. I sat down with Khan to talk about her book. We discussed the growth of new retail in China, how Amazon has emerged even stronger from the pandemic, how Lululemon has had great success continuing to pivot in an ever-changing retail world, and much more. Congratulations on the publication of an updated and expanded edition of your book, The Shopping Revolution. Uh, So you wrote the first edition back in 2017, and that was a tough year for the retail industry. Um, But I think now it pales in comparison to what happened in 2020. So uh, where do you think the industry as a whole emerges from the pandemic and COVID-19? The year of the retail apocalypse, 8,600 stores closed. Of course, in March, April, and May of 2020, when there was something like 250,000 stores closed. Uh, So that was, (laughs) it made the retail apocalypse just pale. And by the end of 2020, 12,000 stores had officially closed. So you're looking at the year of 2020 that just, you know, put the retail apocalypse to shame, so to speak. But I still have the same position I had then, which is that, Physical retail is not going away, just bad retail is going away. And what the pandemic has done, and many experts have said this, and I completely agree with it, is accelerate trends that we already saw happening. 2020, as as a big an event as it was, just accelerated all the trends we knew about in the past. And what's interesting is even with 12,000 stores closing at the end of the year, 2020, Amazon is opening up stores. Amazon, the number one online retailer, everybody's talking about the acceleration to e-commerce, to digital shopping, and Amazon is opening stores. They opened up in Amazon Fresh, their first Amazon Fresh I think in September 2020, and by now they've already had more, as many as eight, and they're still opening. They're opening up Amazon Go stores too. So what does that mean? What do we think the industry will look like? I believe retailing is moving to what I'm calling a customer-centric omni-channel experience. And what that means is it's not online or offline. It's a seamless integration between or among those two channels. And it's all looked at from a customer perspective. And perhaps the best example of that, that the pandemic absolutely accelerated, was this idea of buy online, pick up in the store. And that idea is that you'll shop online, you'll search online, and you'll order what you want to order, and then you'll go to the store and pick it up in your car very conveniently. That's an example to me of the seamless integration, omni-channel experience from the customer perspective. And that's what I think is really going to emerge when we come out of the pandemic. So you you talked about Amazon, and I I did want to talk about some of the seven forces that you say are transforming retail. Um, First, as you described it, Amazon's dominance of the market, um, and especially, you know, coming out of 2020. How has it fast-tracked over the past year, and where do you see Amazon continuing to innovate from here? 
Well, Amazon obviously, in, in, when the pandemic hit, was in a much better position than many other retailers to, to deal with some of the changes that were fostered by the pandemic. But even Amazon um, had some issues in the beginning when they were trying to really step up to the demand that was that was warranted due to the pandemic. But what I think Amazon is doing is capitalizing for sure on e-commerce and all the things they had done before the pandemic. But what I think has happened now is they've really accelerated to this concept of new retail. And you're seeing that as they open up the stores. So again, the stores are moving to this notion of omni-channel. And what does that mean in terms of a physical store? Well, when you go into a physical store if in new retail, you have the customer experience in the store, but you also facilitate online shopping if necessary, and you can use the store somewhat as a distribution center. And I think a lot of their stores now are, are being moved to be very efficient, so you can shop as conveniently as you want, a lot of use of technology. The, uh, the, in the new stores that they're opening up, there's the use of Alexa. Uh, they're, they're really capitalizing on Amazon Prime. The, the, the shopping that they're doing through the Whole Foods also capitalizes on Amazon Prime. So I think what you're seeing in, in where they're moving on top of all the obvious strength they have in e-commerce is to this notion of new retailing, which integrates what we know about online shopping and facilitates it through a physical environment. Also, Amazon is being pushed to make sure they ensure better products and better brands. So one of the indictments against Amazon is that they weren't really monitoring the quality of their products. And, and people were complaining about counterfeit products or they were starting to not trust the delivery of Amazon products. That's obviously very bad for Amazon. And so I think that they're stepping up to that and they're trying to ensure that you can trust a product, even if you buy it from a third party seller on Amazon and they're trying to control their counterfeits more. They're also obviously emphasizing technology and you can see that even in their Super Bowl ad, they're going to do a lot with Alexa, with voice technology, with automation, and they've always been data king. So they'll be doing more and more using machine learning and really kind of optimizing their data so that they can provide the best experience to the consumer. So another trend that you talk about are Generation Z consumers and how they've come into their own over the past several, several years. Um, how are they different than other generations and how are retailers competing to win them over? Generation Z consumers really are significantly different from other generations. Um, they are similar to millennials in that they're digital natives, and that means they're obviously very comfortable with mobile technology, very comfortable shopping online, and very comfortable with this notion I've been talking about of an omni-channel experience. They are also big users of social media, and what we're seeing in retail is what's called shoppertainment where you use live streaming and big influencers, and sometimes in the US celebrities, in other parts of the world they're called KOLs, key opinion leaders are not necessarily celebrities, but they're people who have a lot of influence. And the shopping experience is merging between social media, live streaming, video, vblogs, and, and real shopping into this into this new world where you can buy something, you know, 
through the influence of somebody you admire. One-click shopping will get you to buy what they're suggesting you buy, or you go into the store, or you use your phone in the store. So that whole notion of the blurring of channels involving all sorts of different media, that kind of shopping is very much a Gen Z kind of thing. And the last thing that I think really differentiates Gen Z from other from other generations, and we saw this with the millennials too, but it's much stronger with Gen C, is this importance of social responsibility and the importance of brands or retailers taking a stand and doing the right thing and standing for something. It's not okay to just push products out. You also need to be a citizen of the world and you need to have responsibility for society. The uh, perhaps the key pillar of the book is the con retailing success matrix, and I was hoping you could quickly take us through it and, and what you say makes for successful retail strategies. So one of the things I introduced in my earlier book and I build on in this new updated and expanded version is this idea of a retailing success matrix. And the concept underneath that matrix is, again, retail is not dead, just bad retailers did. So what characterizes the difference between the winners or the successful retailers and the losers? And what I found is in the past, retailing was really built on this concept of product, merchandise, and supply chain operations. The best retailers were known as the best merchants, which meant they were really good at producing product and producing assortment. But what we're seeing now is successful retailers in today's age, and it's accelerated by the pandemic, is that a good retailer has to be customer focused. And so the first principle that goes behind my retailing success matrix is the principle of customer value. What do customers want from a retailer? Well, they want to buy something they value from someone they trust. Buying something they value is not a different idea. That is a good product at a good price. Retailers have always done that. But what is different is buying it from someone they trust. And that is what I, I define as the customer experience. And it's independent of the product that's sold. So good retailers really have to create not only a good product at the right price, but a good customer experience. The other principle behind the success matrix is in very competitive world, you have to do it better than the competition. So you can't just keep doing what you've been doing over time and expect that to work. You really have to change with the times. And how do you do things better than the, than the competition? You either, in retailing, you either make it more fun or make it so they trust you more, or you take away the pain, take away the friction. And with those two concepts, I can create a two by two matrix where the columns are the principle of customer value. So one column is product benefits and the other column is customer experience. And the rows are do it better than the competition, either make it more fun or provide more trust or take away the pain. And that gives me this four boxes. And each one of these boxes represents a potential leadership strategy, which means that retailers can win being the best at any one of these four things. So what are the four things? One is have a great brand, a great product, provide incredible customer value and incredible pleasure. That's still a winning strategy. Luxury does that. Some of the sexy digitally native vertical brands like Warby does that. Zara does that. The second box across the top row is do a, a very great customer experience. 
And what that says is regardless of the products that you sell, the customer experience in and of itself has to draw people into the retailer. And the best example of that for me is Sephora, where Sephora sells a lot of the same products as department stores do, does do, or but, but they do it with a customer experience that really draws people into the store. And the second row is take away the pain. A pain point has always been price. So retailers like Walmart, Walmart, Costco, et cetera, they, they can win on low price. And then the last one is take away the pain from the customer experience. And that's what, of course, Amazon has done better than anybody else. And that requires really collecting and analyzing customer data and being where the customer wants you to be when they want you to be there and taking away all the friction in the purchase process. And that, that's the basics of the, of the success matrix. Be the best at one of those. Um, and then just to add on to it, the, the more complicated strategy is the way you use this matrix is that you have to be good enough in all four of those boxes. And what good enough means is constantly being ratcheted up. So you're always chasing after being good enough and up to customer expectations in all four of those boxes. But to win, to really be the best, the leaders in this industry, you've got to take be the best at one, that's your leadership strategy, and then leverage that to be the best at a second quadrant. And that's what I call the two-quadrant strategy. The book is, is ripe with different examples and case studies, and, and we talked about a few of them. Um, so far, but uh, I was wondering if there's one company in particular or, or brand that you would point to as, you know, exceptionally innovative in this new era. As you can imagine, Amazon, Target, and Walmart have done very well during the pandemic. But in the early times of the pandemic, they had advantages in that they were still operating where many other retailers were closed. So that's kind of a story that everybody knows. What I think is super interesting is how well Lulu has done. Lululemon it was in the right place at the right time for some, you know, for some reasons. Obviously, as everybody's working at home and people are wearing more athleisure clothing, Lulu is selling the right clothing. But Lulu had built such strong customer loyalty and such deep belief in their brand that when the pandemic came, people just stayed with Lulu and they very, very quickly pivoted not only to the physical experience that their stores had always been, but they pivoted to digital in a big way and they could answer the demand that their customers were requiring from them. And they were providing very strong product, which they always had, but they were now ratcheting themselves up to the digital experience as well. And then in a very interesting move, they recently purchased Mirror, which is a way to take their in-store experience where they used to have their ambassadors and run classes and create a community and now do that through this digital interface, the Mirror. And so they can truly move to an omni-channel experience. So this is an example of a retailer that had been primarily physical, really embracing the notion of omni-channel by stepping up their digital game. A big new feature of the, the updated and expanded edition of the book is a new chapter that explores, um, you know, what we've talked about as, as new retail and, and especially in China, um, profiling companies like Alibaba, JD.com, and Taobao. Um, so what trends there do you see becoming more broadly 
um, accepted and innovated across the industry? A lot of um, analysts, and I agree with this, think that Chinese retail is way ahead of the U.S. retail. And what I think the pandemic has done is, again, accelerate everything that all these trends that we had already seen happening and um, and make them even more important in the U.S. And a lot of these trends that we started to see in the U.S. were, were far advanced in China. So there's a couple that, that stand out. One is this notion of new retailing. And what new retail means, and you really see it with Alibaba, and they've opened up these physical stores called Hema in China. And what they are are fully integrated omni-channel experience. So you go into that store, it's a frictionless payment process. You can pay on your phone easily. You walk in the store, you can have a real-time customer experience there, buy fresh fish, do whatever you want. But the store also serves as a distribution center. And so if you buy online, you're, you'll see automation, um, picking out products, delivering products. A part of the store is set up for the distribution channel. When you order online, anything can be distributed within a certain radius within 30 minutes. So you can either go into the store, buy something there, order online, have it delivered, pick up in the store. This blurring between what's online and what's physical retail is complete. There's no separation. It's completely integrated. And the physical retail shows that. That idea of new retail is very advanced in China through Alibaba. And as I said, Amazon's starting to do that. You're starting to see Walmart do that in the U.S. I think that's one trend that's really big. The other thing that's very big in China is this idea of shoppertainment and the importance of what are called key opinion leaders and now even key opinion customers, where you have these massive influencers who spend a lot of time on video blogs and live streaming, and they really authentic authentically sell out products. So they have incredibly loyal consumers or followers who watch what they do on their video. And a lot of the shopping is done through this live streaming event. Um, they they've also are way ahead of the U.S. on frictionless payment. There's two big payment streams there, either WeChat or Alipay, which is 90% of the transactions in China. They're completely independent universes, but these payment systems are Uber apps. It's not only that you can pay, but you can also order a car. You can access social media, you can pay attention to the shoppertainment. All of this is done in one app, and that integrates all of these processes into the seamless retailing experience. And that's what it's like in China. And we'll start to see some of that come to the U.S. So when I was reading the book, I was really fascinated by the, the concept of, of Singles Day and um, was wondering if you could explain what that is and, and how it kind of drives the broader shoppertainment concept that we've discussed before and that you discuss in the book. Yeah, so Singles Day was started in 2009 on 11-11, and the idea was to encourage single people to shop for themselves. It was like an antidote to Valentine's Day or uh, all the coupling and marketing. And Alibaba started it as an enticement to encourage shoppers to shop on their platform, Taobao, which is a C2C kind of uh, platform. Um, and what's happened is it just grew like crazy. Um, and it was just so popular that every year it grew and grew. And other retailers started participating in also. And it just became a huge, huge day to shop to get amazing, amazing 
discounts and amazing entertainment and all sorts of excitement are happening. In 2019, $38 billion was generated on Singles Day in gross merchandise value. That's more than twice as much that's sold on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Amazon Prime Day combined in 2018. So that is a huge amount of transactions. Um, and it just becomes a very, very exciting day. In 2019, Kim Kardashian participated with a, a key opinion leader named Baya, who's very, very big in China. And she came on on this singles day. And within minutes, she sold 15,000 bottles of her new perfume. So it's just incredible. It's really, really projecting out live stream shopping. Um, and, and excitement and generating incredible uh, incredible participate, participation by, by Chinese consumers and shoppers. The one caveat that I put there is that it really focuses on price sensitivity. Um, and so it does really bring into uh, very much of a focus this emphasis on competing on price. Uh, so there are a lot of lessons and takeaways from the book, but if you had to you know, pick one lesson you hope readers take away with them, what would it be? The basic idea that I think is important that I would leave people with is this idea of customer-centered omni-channel experience. And really that means you have to be customer-focused, not product-focused. Think about your channels, your online, your physical store as seamless integration between those two channels. And, and it means you have to constantly being raised, constantly raising the bar because competition is out there. And when consumers see that they can get something very easily on, on Amazon, if you're not able to meet that bar, that expectation that Amazon is setting, they'll buy it on Amazon instead of uh, from you. And although a lot of retail, a lot of consumers want to be loyal to certain retailers, to their local retailers, to their favorite brands, retailing really has to step up to what these new customer expectations are. And really, bottom line, has to be customer-centered and omnichannel. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.